Good morning. Glad you're with us um, online or in person. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 21 and mark it. Uh, we'll come back to it. Um, if you were with us last week, we looked primarily at disbelief uh, as a spiritual state, uh, disbelief as a condition of the soul, and how it makes you uh, blind uh, to the goodness of God, even when it's right in front of your face. Uh, one of the examples we used, if you went with it last week, was Luke 16, when Jesus told a parable of, a rich man in, of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, where the rich man begs Lazarus uh, to be sent to his brothers. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible, um, but he says, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers, my living brothers, so that they won't come where I am, in hell. And Abraham says to, to uh, the rich man, they have the scriptures and Moses and the prophets. And he says, if they don't listen to them, neither will they listen if someone should rise from the dead, right? And we really just started a conversation uh, last week of what disbelief is, uh, what it does to you, and, uh, and belief when it comes to your life with God. And so what I want to do today, and, and this is what I hope, um, I felt that even just the content of last week was sorely inadequate to cover the entirety of that topic, right? What I, all I wanted to do last week is start a conversation. And what I hope is that you have found time that maybe you're not as like plagued by this stuff as me, but like, it's like I wrestle with it, right? Like stay up at night sometimes, right? I hope you've had time to circle back around to some of those ideas that we've talked about and tease these things out uh, in community and in relationship, right? What's the limitations of what I said? Is it true in all aspects? Where is it not true? Have I experienced these kind of provocative things like that to where we work these things out in real life? And I'm just gonna keep harping, the, I mean, beating this drum until you get tired of me and go find somewhere else. If you are not in uh, Christ-exalting, Jesus-lifting community and relationships that are pushing you on towards Jesus, my heart goes out to you. You're missing the lion's share of what it means to be the people of God, which is that we are a people, a people together, right, that are pushing back darkness and trying to figure out what it means to live in the light. We need others to fight with and debate and argue and go to the scriptures and figure out what it means for us. And if you don't have that, my heart goes out to you. I'm Again and again and again, I'm just going to say, man, find people. I don't care if they go here. Half the people that these, I don't go here, right? Then I go, look, find people that you love and you trust, whose intended aim of that relationship is encouraging you in the Lord, right? Profoundly grateful for the people in my life that are willing to do life with me together and wrestle through the issues that we talk about on Sunday. So, okay, plug done. So last week, we spent most of our time on the idea of disbelief. And this week, I want to shift the conversation towards belief, specifically the nature of Christian belief and also what Jesus said about belief, which I think you might find surprising in some ways. And I want to kind of dovetail this week in with last week, okay? And I have kind of four main points. You type A's, here it is. Faith has an unknown element to it. Christian faith has an element of risk to it. According to Jesus, faith is uncommon. And according to Jesus, faith is deeply personal. All right, so that's what we're gonna, I'm gonna try to convince you of from the scripture. So let's, let's pray. Jesus, 
I ask you for the peace of the Holy Spirit to rest on our hearts in ways that no man can contrive. Lord, would you come and allow us to experience the rest of soul that David was talking about in Psalm 23. He knew you as his good shepherd who prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies and who causes him to lie down and be at peace by still waters. God, come do that. Come have your way in our hearts and minds this morning, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we mentioned that Christian belief, contrary to some, what some may believe, is not a f- blind belief. It is not a blind faith. What we said last week is one of the great claims of Jesus is that he came to make the blind see, not ask for blind allegiance. And we spoke briefly about that briefly about the historical reliability of the Bible, and all that's true. I believe the historical evidence that is there, if you are willing to look at it, resoundingly affirms the claims of the early church that Jesus did rise from the dead, that some sort of power had to come on this small group of defeated, sad friends who just lost their leader to crucifixion. It's really the only way to make sense of how a tiny disenfranchised, persecuted minority religious group somehow came to be the largest religion on the face of the earth today, right? It's impossible, y'all, to dismiss the influence of this one man, Jesus. He is arguably the most influential person who has ever lived. Prove me wrong, right? So, for example, show me another historical figure, right, who right now thousands and thousands of people are gathering to worship, right? Either... He was the greatest con artist of all time, or he was exactly who he said he was, right? So because I believe the word of God, and I believe that there is historical evidence to believe that, I don't think that our faith is blind. That's, that's why it's historically, right? I don't think he's asking us to jump off into the unknown with no reason to believe he's good or that he will catch us. Last week, Piper said only a fool would have faith like that. Now, I just, I'm dovetailing here, right? I say all that to say this. That does not mean that there is no level of risk or unknowing when you follow Jesus, right? So first, let's deal with the unknown nature of faith. What is that, right? Well, depending on what you claim to believe, there are things you know and that you don't know. In fact, to have faith in anything requires some level of not knowing or it wouldn't be called faith. So I'll give you an example of this. So if you have faith in science, like most good post-enlightenment people do, right? Yeah, faith in science, you're not saying that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt this or that. You're saying you believe upon the reliability of the scientific method that if you do this, this will happen, okay? That's what we believe. So let me give you an example of that, right? Facts, you know, right? This is what we know. Vegetation needs water to grow. Do we know that? Yes. Yeah, it's not going to grow, right? I mean, I even see some of these, right? Because like, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we know that. We know that, right? It's a fact. It's a fact. We know that, okay? If it rains, should something grow? Okay, yes, generally. But you even still, you're thinking. If you're thinking, you're like, well, I don't know. Does it? Will it? I don't know. It's a fact. Okay, so what we're saying there is, generally speaking, 
We have reason to believe if it rains, vegetation will grow. We have a confidence in the reliability of something as true, but that does not mean you always know the outcome in every situation. Correct? There is a situation in which rain falls and something does not grow, right? Depending on elevation, soil content, blah, 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 agricultural people can speak into that, all right? So there are things we know, and there are things we don't know. Y'all, that is true of faith in any sphere of life, if we are honest. There are There's plenty of unwarranted bravado around science. When people claim and are confident of things, science can't really guarantee. Likewise, there's plenty of unwarranted bravado in Christianity. When people are confident about things, God in no way promises. One of the things I want you to meditate on today is as a Christian, what do you know and what do you not know? And let's not act like we know things we don't know, right? So there will always be an element of the unknown in faith. The nature of faith requires that what you are putting your faith in is not 100% known or wouldn't require faith. It's why faith is most often talking about the future, right? It's often talking about things that we don't know yet, yet will believe, we believe will happen because of A, B, C. This is one of the reasons the word faith has become so convoluted in our day. When we say, do you believe in Jesus? People immediately put that in the category of, do you believe in the Easter Bunny? Or do you believe in Santa Claus? Which causes you to totally miss the entire point of the Christian faith, right? Look at me. Jesus is a historical reality, y'all. There are plenty of extra biblical documents that refer to Jesus as a historical person. To not believe Jesus was a man that walked on the face of the earth is to close your eyes to history, even according to secular historians. You would be hard pressed to find a historian anywhere that would dare say that Jesus didn't exist. Now, if you find him, email him to me because I'm interested to hear that, right? You'd be hard pressed to find him, all right? When we say, do you believe in Jesus? What we are really saying or trying to say is not do you believe he existed, but rather do you believe the claims of Jesus? That's the lion's share of what it means to be a Christian. Not mental assent to the fact that someone historically existed forever ago. What we're saying when we say, do you believe in Jesus? What we're trying to say is, do you believe Jesus? That's what makes you a Christian. To believe that Jesus existed doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you a person of reason and fact and history. To believe the claims of Jesus, that makes you a Christian, which of course gets to the primary things that Christians believe. Our faith is not simply that he existed, but more importantly, we believe that he, what he claimed about himself, who he said he was, and what he said he came to do. That's what it means to be a Christian, and that's getting at the essence of what we know by faith. Important language. But there are plenty of things we don't know in our faith, which brings us to the risk of Christian faith. In Christianity, being a person of faith also introduces risk, sometimes great risk into your life. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, John Wimber said, you spell faith, the founder of the vineyard, part of the church movement we're a part of. He said, you spell faith, R-I-S-K. Well, what? What did he mean by that? Well, did he mean historically we have no reason to believe this is all true and we're just risking? No, it's not what he meant at all. This is what he meant by that. Tell Paul, if you were with us through the book of Acts, tell Paul there's no risk 
and following Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Look at the list that he gives in 2 Corinthians 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once stoned. <laughs> three times. Three times shipwrecked. At that point, you're like, man, what? come on, bro. Like, what, what's going on? Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Tell Paul there's no risk in being a Christian and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposed to the elements. Tell the missionaries we support who live in places where it's dangerous to mention the name of Jesus. There's no risk in following Jesus. Think of the risk that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took when they said in faith, we will not bow to you, king. We believe God will rescue us. We know he can rescue us. And even if he doesn't, we're not gonna bow to you. That is the inherent risk associated with being a person of faith. So they put their life, they remarkable faith in God, right? Knowing that they could die. And, and yet, they were so confident, they had such conviction about this God that they were willing to risk. What were they so confident of? It's my question for us today, right? There were things, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stay with them, right? 100% sure of. Conviction bewildering to the king, most certainly. How could you say these things? Your own life, you're gonna be burned alive. Go back and read that story, it's crazy, right? What? were they 100% sure of? And what were the things they didn't know? They had no clue if they would die. They had no clue the ramifications of their faith on their physical life. They knew something else. What was that thing they were 100% certain of? And that's what I want to consider today. What is it that we are confident of as Christians? And what are the things we are not confident of? We can know from Scripture that the full assurance of faith talked about in Hebrews 10 and 11 is not full assurance of physical safety or material abundance or a free pass out of suffering. When in Hebrews 11, which is known as the hall of faith, right, goes down this long list of great men and women of the Bible who walked in faith, it ends with some were imprisoned, sawn in two, Stone, afflicted, and mistreated. Therefore, we can know our faith isn't talking about a suffering-free life. Amen. Right? That's not what our faith is in. And a lot of poor souls get confused about this and walk away from God because they thought if they believed, it would mean all would go well with them. Well, I'm just telling you that assurance is not given to you in Scripture. It's not the case in Scripture. And what we really find, if you look at Scripture, is being a person of faith may, in fact, do the exact opposite, introduce great risk into your life, right? You are walking a path not your own. You are led by a light not your own. And you're leaning on understanding not your own. Of course, there's going to be an element of risk involved in these things. And all of these things are unseen realities that we are trusting to lead to ultimate and lasting flourishing and abundance in the end. That's what I believe, right? But that doesn't mean I know where, the path, where all the path may wind and what kind of things my immediate future may hold in becoming a person of faith. Therefore, 
the primary substance of the Christian faith, the full assurance the Christian faith has to do with who God is and where you stand in a relationship to him. That's the confidence and the conviction of the Christian faith. The substance of what Christians claim to believe is that. This is who God is. And because of his character and nature, therefore, this is where I stand in relationship to him. That is the substance of your faith, if you call yourself a Christian, right? And everything else flows from that. This is what I believe. This is what I believe God is like. And because I believe who he is, what he's like, what he's done, what he claims, therefore, this is where I stand with him. And it really boils down to that, if you can. The great claim of Christianity is that we believe that Jesus, inside of him, the fullness of deity dwells. Therefore, we believe when we look at Jesus, we see exactly what God is like. That is the uniquely Christian claim. Plenty of people, plenty of religions have ideas of what God is like. The Christian claim is that when we look at Jesus, we see exactly who God is like. And it's a remarkable claim, y'all. I mean, it's a remarkable claim. If you're not in some way struggling with that claim, I don't think you've thought about it, okay? Now, conversely, it does not take faith to understand something is wrong with the cosmos. It doesn't take faith at all. Almost every academic paper, news report <laughs> these days, news article is pointing out something is wrong here, right? It's what movie and TV directors are often trying to point out, right? Something's profoundly wrong with the world. Everyone just disagrees about what it is and therefore what the solution is, right? And I'll tell you what, people's favorite whipping boys when it comes to what's wrong with the world Right? Government structures, educational systems, religious infrastructures, capital. Everyone has a favorite whipping boy when it comes to what's wrong. You do too with what's wrong with the world. Most of us, even if you're Christians, it's not sin. You're like, no, it's really the government that's wrong with the world. It's because you're talking about it all the time, right? You, have, you believe something about the world. You're going to try to convince me that everything's awesome in the world? No. The question is what's wrong with the world, right? And that's where Christian faith comes in, right? Everyone knows something's wrong. I just watched a documentary that pretty convinced me that what's wrong with the world is social media. I mean, it was pretty convincing. Social dilemma, I'm just saying, throwing it out there, right? But it doesn't take faith to see the problem. One of the fundamental claims of Christianity is that my wife immediately elited her Facebook right after that. It was funny. Anyway. One of the fundamental claims of Christianity is that the solution, the things the thing that puts humanity back together, back on the right course, is real faith in who God is, which is seen most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the Christian claim. Solution to the problem, and that's what it takes faith to see. The full assurance, the confidence, and astounding conviction we see in the book of Acts, in the disciples, was not a confidence that nothing bad would happen to them. Their confidence was in that Jesus was who he said he was. That was their confidence, that Jesus is trustworthy and worthy of any risk that we may endure, right? And because we believe him to be faithful, we therefore believe the things that he's claimed he's done. And it was a bewildering confidence to those around him, confusing, disorienting confidence to those around him, right? Side note, maybe not just a side note, maybe actually a really big conversation when you're talking about faith, their confidence was not a reality in the disciples until they received the Holy Spirit. 
that should be introduced to the conversation about faith, right? In scripture, it's clear there was a connection between the filling of the Holy Spirit and them becoming bold. So having wrestled some with the idea of faith, right? Considering what Christians believe, at least at its most simple level, I want to turn now to what Jesus said about faith, or more specifically from what we've said about faith, the struggle people had, even his own friends, of actually believing the claims that he made. All right? So we have this idea that if you go to church, that means you must believe. Is that not an idea? Is that not a cultural thing? Oh, you go to church, other you believe, right? Okay, accepted premise. The Jews had a very similar notion, didn't they? For them, it was ethnic. For Jews, it was if you are a Jew, racial. If you are a Jew, then you are the people of God. Therefore, you believe. You're a person of faith. Your ethnicity makes you so. And we will see one of the primary things Jesus confronted was that notion over and over and over again. And I'm going to tell you something. I think he confronts our notions today too. Right? That if you just show up one hour on a Sunday morning... That means you're a person of faith. That means you believe the claims of Jesus. What he seemed to point to over and over and over again is trusting him. Faith in him is not, look at me, is not as common as you think. It's not. I'm going to prove it to you. Let's start here. Last week we said Jesus was always confronting disbelief, and he was. Here's an example of Jesus pointing out. You're like, man, this is coming on heavy today, bro. I'm sorry, just jacked up, all right? (laughs) Jesus pointing out in those who claimed they believed that they in fact did not believe. And I'm pointing out the scripture for a reason. Here we go. Matthew 21, if you open to it, it's Matthew 21, verse 28. Should be on the screen. He says this. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he said to the other son, the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Pretty simple story. One said, I won't go, and then changed his mind and went. The other said, I'll go, and then didn't. Which of the two did the will of his father? Jesus had this really amazing way of putting things in simple terms. And they said, well, the first, duh, right? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, and he was speaking to religious people, us kind of people. He said, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, we can't begin to understand how culturally scandalizing saying something like that would have been to the religious elite of the day. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus isn't just saying here, you guys don't believe. (laughs) He's saying, you guys have an external and superficial belief in God that in reality is void of all true faith and actual obedience. And he said, that is exemplified in that when you see outsiders being brought in, when you see sinners being transformed, when you see those you have dismissed as worthless being given a second chance, you scorn it. And he said, all of that is showing that you really do not believe 
who God has shown himself to be merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He's saying, you really don't believe that. If you believed that God was kind-hearted, then you would be rejoicing at what's happening. But even when you see it, you won't believe, right? Jesus is saying, despite the fact you claim to believe, there's really no faith in the character and nature of who God is as he has revealed himself in scripture and in Jesus himself, right? You may have some sort of faith in God, but it's not Christian faith because it's not based on who Jesus is, you see. But Jesus didn't, didn't just confront the rarity, the uncommonness of faith in the religious elite. He continually dealt with the struggle and rarity of faith, even in his own disciples. In fact, Jesus made up a little nickname for his disciples. He took two words and smushed them together. Ready for this? Olagas, okay, which means little or tiny or barely, and pistis, which is the New Testament Greek word for faith or conviction, fidelity or faithfulness. And he said, you are an oligapistas. He made a word up. He squinched them together, a little endearing nickname that maybe we give to our friends that we know reveals some sort of truth about us, right? We see this word over and over again in the, in the ministry of Jesus. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. But most frequently, we see it when Jesus was talking to his disciples. You, oh, it's, he's, oh, you little faith. You little faiths. You're a little faith. A barely faith. A just eensy-beensy faith. It's a name he was giving them. Matthew 6.30, he says, in the Sermon on the Mount, God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you little faith? The nickname. So if you look at the interpretation, it's, it's two words smushed together, right? Matthew 14, 31. When Peter steps out into the water and begins to sink because he takes his eyes off Jesus, he immediately, Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him and says, why did you doubt, oh, you little faith? Called him a nickname. You infrequent faith. You rare faith. It was little. Jesus is pointing out, even inside those close to him, inside their hearts, the commonality, the frequent, frequency of actually believing the claims of Jesus was rare. Dude, bro's walking on water. I mean, he saw him take bread and loaves and feed 5,000, right? Miracle after miracle, blind men receiving sight. All of these things they see. And Jesus said, you still don't get it. You're not trusting what I'm saying. You're, you have little faith, infrequent faith, right? As if to say, y'all, trusting in the claims of Jesus may be much harder than we think. If even his own disciples struggled to believe the scale of what Jesus claimed to do, that they were small-minded compared to Jesus, don't you think it's going to be a struggle for us? Or you can say it this way. The impact Jesus intended to have in human history was continually underestimated, even by those closest to him. And I would argue today that the impact Jesus longs to have even in your own life is continually underestimated by us today, right? If Jesus, would have, if Jesus would have had said stuff like this, if he would have said stuff like this, we're gonna deal with his claims now, okay? If he would have said stuff like this, here's five ways to feed your soul. Or if he would have said stuff like this, let me show you techniques 
to drink from spiritual wells. Well, then we, maybe we would have got it. That's easy. Like you can, they can jive with that. Here's, here's five techniques to feed your soul. Just do this. You can practice those things. You can even become master yourself, can't you? You can do that. You know, techniques. We can do that. But that's not what he said. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will eat and live forever. That's crazy. That's crazy. If, if you stood up, Tim Keller says this, if you stood up in the subway, New York subway, and said, I know the way to spiritual flourishing, people would look at you and say, get in line, bro. Everybody has some claim of spiritual. If you stood up and said, I am the way of spiritual flourishing, they'd be grabbing their kids and calling the loony bin. This is a crazy claim. Jesus didn't say, do these things and you, maybe you'll enter life. He said, come to me. He said, I am the bread. He said, I am the living water. Like either he was lost his mind or he was exactly what he said he was. There's no option to take Jesus as some sort of philosophy, religious leader. And hey, I like the guy. No, no, no. He didn't leave that open to you. We either bow at his feet and eat the only food the cosmos has or we starve. Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I am the bread. It's insane, right? Of course they struggled to believe it, and so do we. So where else in Scripture do we see Jesus pointing to the fact that faith is not actually as common as we might think, even among those who claim it? Well, you may have already thought of this if you're with me. Uh, The whole last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount is really addressing this. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount and in the larger context, could, could, you could argue that he's addressing faith in many ways in the, in the entire sermon. But especially in the last chapter, 7, 13, and 14, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Thanks a lot, Pastor. Real encouraging word, bro. Amen. Let's go home. No. No, this is hard for us, isn't it? (laughs) See, isn't the message of Christianity, the gates have been flung open. Come, all who would enter. Yeah, it is. Isaiah 55, come, anyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come, who has no money, buy, eat. Yes and amen. That's the message. But in no uncertain terms, Jesus is telling that the gate is open, but it is, in fact, narrow. And very few people will actually go in it. Why? Well, he says it's hard. (laughs) He says it's hard, y'all. I know right now, if you're on the outside of Christianity and you're thinking, this dude's a crappy salesman, you know. Well, at least you know what you're getting into. I want to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you about what Jesus said about what it means to be a Christian. I'm not going to try to polish it to get you in the door. This is what Jesus has said. He says it's hard and few find it, right? And that was just as shocking and bewildering to the Jews that he was speaking to as it is to us, y'all. Just as shocking, just as hard to hear. It was hard. Jesus goes on to explain after that, kind of continues to to, uh, work. He says, listen, don't believe everyone who's, who says they speak for me. This is right after this. He says, they're going to 
wolves in sheep's clothing. What is that? That is people who act like they believe, but in reality don't. Don't believe them, he says. He says, but you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know true faith by its fruit. And he goes on to say, look, not everyone, this is the same right after this, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom, y'all. People are going to come. This is what Jesus, this is what he says. He says, people are going to come and say, Lord, didn't we prophesy and, and do miracles and heal people all in your name, do great things for you? And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I don't know you. See, this is all teasing out what it really means to be a person of faith. He's, he's pointing out empty and shallow claims of faith. And he, he goes on. He ends by giving them a picture. He says, if you hear my words, if you hear them and you obey them, you're like a house built on the rock. He says, it's going to last. It will endure the storm even into eternal life. Now, again, just side note, if you're a Christian group in church, your brain doesn't catch the fact of the audaciousness of this claim. He says, if you believe my words, you will live. That's crazy. <laughs> if I said that, you guys are out of here. You want to live forever? Do what I say. That's literally what he just said, y'all. His claims should confront you at every point of the game. He says, but if you hear my words and don't obey, it's like your house is on sand. And he says, amidst the suffering and struggles of life, it will collapse in on itself. And when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished. That word there means like being struck in the face, aghast, greatly alarmed, not only at the authority of his teaching, but because he was knocking on their accepted worldview that if they were a Jew, they were in good with the big guy. Right? So he says to us, right? He's saying to them, hey, listen, your ethnicity, nor the fact that you go somewhere one hour on a Sunday morning, is synonymous with being a person of faith. All this, I would argue, is why if you show up in church and actually believe this stuff, people are like, dude, you should be in ministry. <laughs> and it's because they sent this small spark of what we would call faith. And they're like, man, you're a super Christian, right? Chandler, Matt Chandler, a pastor I listen to, he says, do you know what makes me a good pastor? Not my communication, not my personality. All that stuff can serve being a pastor. He says, I'm a good pastor because I believe this stuff. Maybe all I'm really trying to plead with you today is what Paul pleads in 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself and see if you are in the faith, Right? There's a whole lot of evidence in scripture that the great need of those who claim to have faith is in fact to examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. When we look at the staggering claims of Christ, along with the power and impact of the Holy Spirit, it becomes very possible that many of those who find themselves hearing the claims of Christ in reality do not believe it. Now, everyone breathe. In no way am I attempting to make any judgments on you and your faith today. I'm not. I am simply pointing out 
that when Jesus talked about the numbers of those who would believe and find life, his words were few. Now, he also pointed out, in many cases, those who would say, I believe, in fact, do not. And those who others would say they couldn't believe, in fact, will and can and do. And Jesus also made it clear that anyone, anyone at any moment can step into trusting his claims for them in ways that would profoundly impact and change them for eternity. That's why he said stuff like this. All who are weary, come to me. That's why he said stuff like, if anyone, anybody, anybody out there keeps my word, he will never taste death. It's why he said stuff like, whosoever believes will have eternal life, right? So when he says that the gate is narrow, the way is hard, and few find it, that does not mean God has made it that way as a cruel and punitive way to disqualify. What it may mean is that in the end, fewer than we thought truly believed what Jesus claimed for himself. And I want to caution you, even as you look at your own heart, which I hope you will, do not confuse outward, often social religious acts with faith, i.e., they go to church, they pray out loud, they preach sermons, they give to the needy, they even practice spiritual disciplines like fasting. See, Jesus addressed all that stuff. And he seemed to think you could do all that stuff, not from faith, but rather for the eyes of men. Read the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of this teaching was trying to help us see the difference in our own minds of those who do religious things to please men and those who act out of faith. And if we sit with his teachings, what we learn is that faith is deeply personal and deeply intimate. And it is a choice that we choose and it puts us on a path of beginning to walk deeply and intimately with Jesus himself. That's the way Jesus talked about faith. It's one of the reasons when he said, when you pray, do it in secret. When you give, do it in secret. When you fast, do it in secret. He was saying too many of y'all's faith is rooted in the social aspects and rewards and not me. That's what he was pointing out. And he's revealing to us the nature of faith as a Christian, that it is deeply intimate and deeply personal. Look, I... I, the community drum, I'm going to keep beating, right? I'm going to keep, and rightfully so, right? But I'm just going to say to you, no, as we close, no amount of hanging out with Christians will settle the dilemma of faith for you personally. Choosing to trust will always be something that will happen inside of you, right? And I say that, y'all, to comfort you after a very aggressive sermon. <laughs> I say that to comfort you by pointing this out. Your faith will, listen to me, your faith will not be determined or limited by anyone else in this room. Amen. You should find comfort there that I am not the ceiling to your faith. Praise his name. <laughs> Gah! 
Jesus made it clear that him and him alone, that's who our faith is in. I'm, it's about a burden off my shoulders. <sighs> some, of your, some of y'all's faith transcends the depth of my faith. Let's praise his name. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Your faith will not be determined or limited by in this room. It doesn't matter if no one around you is choosing to walk in obedience and trust. You can. You can. And I think God is much more interested in the unseen decisions we make to walk in personal obedience more so than the public ones we do, right? So historically, let me just real quick and we'll wrap it up. I've never felt more alive or free than when I had decided to walk in obedience to Jesus, whether or not anyone was behind me. In this way, there is nothing more empowering or liberating than faith in Christ because it connects you to him directly. He becomes the teacher and you become his student. It's what Jesus was getting at when he said, don't call anyone teacher. I'm your teacher. He's trying to help us understand the nature of faith is intimately personal with himself, right? And at the end of the day, y'all, your faith or lack of faith will be something in between you and the Lord. And I want to encourage your heart today. When Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock in Revelations, he was talking to the church, right? So if you call yourself a Christian, does your faith have any element of hidden personal devotion to Christ himself? And if not, you may be dangerously close to those whom Jesus said do all their religious deeds to be seen by others. Jesus, make us a people of deep and robust faith. Let's stand and pray.